The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week on Science for the People, we're talking about lady bits. We'll hear from Julie Weeb about prolapse in women, what it is, and how to fight it. But first, we'll hear from Kate Clancy about her postpartum experience and why no one is talking about new moms. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Bethany Brookshire, science writer at Science News and Society for Science and the Public. And while we are a proudly Canadian podcast, I live in the United States. One of the things we've been hearing about here more and more is an issue with birth. Not with the babies, but with the mothers. When a baby is born, many people want to know how the baby is doing, how it looks, how it feels, what it weighs, how long it is, how, how large its head is. But in the United States, at least, it appears that fewer people are asking the woman who just pushed a live human being out of a tube between her legs how she's faring. There are many things that can go wrong for mothers during and after birth. In 2015, Canada had a maternal death rate of 7.3 women per 100,000 births. Go, Canada! You were doing great. That's actually among the top in the world, outclassed only by countries like Finland, which has 3.8 maternal deaths per 100,000 live births. But in the United States, it seems that more and more things that can go wrong are going wrong. In 2015, the United States had a 26.4 maternal deaths per 100,000 live births. That's more than three times that of Canada and closer to countries like China and Barbados. In fact, the United States has the highest maternal death rate in the developed world. It didn't used to be like this. How did it get this way? And more importantly, what does that mean for the women actually giving birth? Here to talk with us about her personal and professional experiences in the world of maternal health is Kate Clancy. She's an anthropologist who studies feminist biology at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. And in her tiny drips of free time, she is also the host of the Period podcast, a podcast about women's health, which is a subject which people all too often avoid. And recently, Kate had a baby and posted a viral thread about her postpartum experience. Kate, thank you so much for making the time for us. Thanks for having me. Now, I'll just start that if you're listening with people who are young, or if you're worried about listening to delicate things, we are going to be talking about the female reproductive tract and other tracts in the pelvic area. Whether oh, yeah. and when you listen to that is up to you, but I personally would not listen to this podcast over breakfast. Now, Kate, <laughs> you recently posted a Twitter thread about your postpartum experience. Would you mind kind of walking us through what happened? Certainly. Uh, w walking you through the thread or walking you through the experience? I, the experience, I guess. Okay. Yeah, no, no, that's okay. Um, so, uh... I had a baby on August 5th. It was my second baby. So I've done this before. And um, this was after, so I was due on July 25th of 2017. And the baby decided to wait about 11 days before she made her appearance. And, uh, you know, there are some things that happen when you go late. I am of the mind that it, um, on the baby side, at least, it always makes sense to let the baby tell you when to be born. Um, because then that tells you that the baby is sufficiently mature of adequate weight, um, and, and is sufficiently stressed that it's time to come out. So the timing of like when a baby comes out is, um, generally across the world much more up to the baby. In the United States, we actually make it a lot more up to doctors and, and parents. Um, but I was trying to let the baby decide and she decided to wait. Uh, and for the most part, that's a great thing. Um, unfortunately, the one not so great thing is because I'm so good at making babies, I can make kind of big ones. And she was on the bigger side. Lots of people push out big babies without any problems. Um, this baby was nine pounds, three ounces. And, uh, you know, there was a little bit of an issue at the end where she got a little stuck. And that's called shoulder dystocia, where her shoulder just kind of got a little wedged in there. 
midwife did a really great job just kind of getting her hand up there doing some kind of manipulation I don't remember the name of and she popped right on out. Unfortunately, after she popped out, which was one of the best experiences of my life, um, you know, and I brought her up to my chest because I was in the water at the time, um, I started feeling kind of uncomfortable. So we're taking all these pictures and I have these pictures of me basically smiling as I'm hemorrhaging as, as it turns out. Um, where my, my older daughter came in right after the baby was born and she burst into tears. So I'm just thrilled because my daughter's thrilled and taking pictures with her and my husband. But I'm also kind of telling people as it's happening, I'm like, hey, things feel weird. And all of a sudden there's like chunks coming out of my vagina and that seems weird. I remember reaching down and feeling like, no, the umbilical cord's still up in there. So this isn't like the placenta coming out. What in the world is happening? So, you know, um, we eventually decided, hey, we'd better figure out what's going on because this seems like more than the normal amount of bleeding. And I passed out sort of as we started pulling me out of the tub and I started hemorrhaging some more. So I'm going to cut this part pretty short, but just... uh I'll just say that um, I hemorrhaged a number of times after that. I was in a birth center and birth centers are just as equipped as hospitals to handle um, postpartum hemorrhage. And the birth center and the midwives were spectacular, um, not just with the ones that happened immediately postpartum, but, you know, over the next couple of hours, it continued to happen. And, um, and if I, and because I was in a birth center, um, the midwives never left my side. And so when it happened, they were able to respond instantly. Whereas, you know, sometimes in other scenarios, um, you know, in hospital scenarios, and, and a doctor can certainly correct me if my wrong, if I'm wrong, but uh, my experience from attending other people's births is that, you know, once things are kind of cleaned up and the baby's okay, everybody leaves the room. So, um, you know, I could have been alone when those things happened and I wasn't. So I'm incredibly grateful to the midwives for catching every time it started to happen and doing all sorts of life-saving, wonderful things um, to keep me safe. They wanted to transfer me to a hospital at that point once I was stable enough so that I could get some blood transfusions. And frustratingly, the doctor decided that I was healthy and fine and probably didn't need it. Um, and looking back that, I mean, again, I'm not an MD, I'm a PhD, but you know, I'm a, I wonder sometimes about whether that was, um, the right move, but this is of course it with hindsight, right? And I mean, you don't always know in the moment, but, um, you know, not having a blood transfusion meant that I had to naturally replete my iron stores and that I had to be really easy on myself for six weeks because, you know, a, a car accident, an extra hemorrhage at home, any kind of tiny thing where I just lost a little more blood would have been, you know, it would have had pretty devastating devastating consequences for me. Um, so I was sort of on this edge of, of healthy for quite some time. Um, and so that, of course, meant that I was probably pretty immune compromised, which is part of what led to, I think, a lot of the downstream stuff. So I'm on antibiotics at this point because they want to make sure there's no extra bits of placenta in me because when you hemorrhage, that's one of the concerns. And, uh, and so then um, once I was off the antibiotics, is when the next kind of big thing happened. So I'm taking crazy amounts of iron and crazy amounts of stool softener along with it <laughs> so that I continue to have normal bowel movements. Because but iron then, can result in constipation. That's the thing. Yes. Yep. Yes, exactly. And I was taking two a day of this like crazy high amount of iron, um, which you only need, or you're only normally supposed to take one of. And anyway, so I was taking lots of iron. And uh, I had so so then one day, I very suddenly started having, um, well, I'll, I'll gloss over the worst of it. But basically, uh, diarrhea and hemorrhoids all suddenly like flared up instantly at the same time on the same day. Oh my <clears throat> and it was really painful. And so I first went and got the hemorrhoids treated, not realizing that I had C. diff at the time. So, you know, I was um, having these movements uh, 10 times a day and crying all day and telling my husband I didn't want to be alive. Like by the third or fourth day, I was telling him I just don't even want to be alive anymore, which of course was very concerning. 
Um, and that's when I called back up the doctor and I was like, okay, whatever's going on with me, this doesn't seem normal either. <laughs> so I had to have a, um, I had to do a stool sample and that's when they figured out I had C. diff and put me on a new round of antibiotics, which actually within like 12 to 24 hours, I already started feeling so much better. It was magic. Um, so then, you know, so then I went through the C. diff. Then the next thing I went through was, um, developing a rectocele, which I can also walk you through in more detail. Um, if you have questions about it, but that's a type of prolapse where there's, um, vaginal wall weakening between the rectum and, uh, the vagina. It's very, common in lots of people. It's especially common in postpartum women. And, uh, and so then, um, and for, and, oh, and of course there were anal fissures that happened somewhere in there as well, that it turns out that what I thought were just hemorrhoids turned out to also be hemorrhoids and fissures that I later went to a colorectal doctor to also get dealt with. So this was all kind of happening at the same time that just basically that whole region of my body was a hot mess. <laughs> Yeah. And then uh, I'm I'm sort of being treated for all of these things except for the prolapse because I live in a fairly fairly rural area and the one PT in my town uh, just went on maternity leave the day before I called with my referral. Um, so I haven't actually started to get PT for that yet, even though it's been almost two months. And uh, and then when I was um, away on holiday, I got mastitis on top of that. So that's an infection um, in the breast that is pretty common in in breastfeeding moms. So then I was on another round of antibiotics that I just finished a few days ago. And of course, I had lots of um, side effects from the antibiotics, including really painful heartburn and uh, a lot of intestinal distress from that as well. So I'm taking tons of probiotics in the hope that that staves off me getting, you know, another round of C. diff or something, which is probably my biggest fear right now. You mm -hmm. are, you know, dealing with a newborn baby. Yeah. So caring for a baby, and it's not even my first baby, right? So caring for my older daughter, caring for my baby, and fielding um, in the first, this past semester, fielding constant emails from colleagues about, are you back yet? Are you back yet? When are you going to be back? Let's get back to work. Um, and then, of course, myself also, and not to totally blame them, but myself also, I was fighting really hard to try to get back to work. And, and in fact, just got back yesterday, um, or sorry, two days ago from a trip solo, just me and the baby um, down to DC for a panel that I'm on for the National Academy of Sciences. So yeah, I've been traveling for work. I've been I've done two NAS um, committee trips, actually, since having the baby one in October, and then one this past month, um, in addition to, uh, you know, other, you know, other work. Well, I, I hope you're feeling better. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Yay, it's been so fun. <laughs> Happy 2018. Um, so I did want to kind of go back just a little bit through some of these because what I found to be one of the most tragic, I, tragic um, things about your experience um, is that a lot of the things that you went through are really common. Like mm -hmm. They happen a lot to a lot of people. And yet it seems like we don't really know a lot about them. Um, so for example, you had hemorrhaging immediately after um, birth and then several times. Um, that's a massive loss of blood. That's what hemorrhaging means. <laughs> mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, you, given how babies are born, we kind of know where that comes from. Um, and you also ended up with a perineal tear. Can you tell us what that is and what the different stages of that can be? Sure. Um, I'm, I probably will not get the stages right, to be totally honest, of the perineal tear. Um, I just, it's basically a level of severity thing. So a perineal tear, it's a tearing just in, uh, in that whole region is not uncommon when giving birth. Um, for a while there, doctors thought they were helping out by doing what's called an episiotomy, so cutting you as you're giving birth. I've attended a birth where that happened without the without the mom's consent, actually, and it was really upsetting. 
um, where the doctor just decided he thought she needed it. So he just cut her. Um, usually you need to, you need to ask for consent. Um, there, it's my understanding that there's some pretty good data out there that, uh, women heal better from natural tears than from being cut. <clears throat> so, you know, it happened to me with my first birth. I had a stage two tear. It happened with this one. I also had a stage two on a slightly different location. What it just means is like, you know, there's a lot of plasticity down there. Like the, the, the tissue is soft. The cervix goes from being open the size of a pinprick to being 10 centimeters in diameter. There's some pretty impressive stuff happening down there. But even with that happening, um, you know, the tissue can get stretched too thin and can tear some. A stage one would be like a really minor tear. Stage two, what I had just basically next stage up, um, <clears throat> my tear was basically towards the anus, so the perineal area. But people sometimes tear around their labia or sometimes they tear on their cervix. Um, so I feel like my tear, again, I kind of lucked out. It's a really common place to tear. And midwives and doctors and um, and lots of folks are very good at stitching up that area very well. And so each time I've had great people stitching me up and it's healed beautifully each time. A stage three is definitely the more serious one where you can have more tissue damage. Um, and sometimes people do tear bad, badly enough that they can, they can tear from like basically from the vulva to, um, to the anus. And I, of course, did not have anything like that happen. So the tear was like the, the most minor part <laughs> of this entire experience. In, and it's also quite common. Yeah. So to be clear, the perineum is, uh, it's, it's a technical term a lot of people don't know about, but the perineum is the area in between the vagina and the anus, or in uh, men, that would be the area between the testicles and the anus. And it's sometimes called the taint. <laughs> so yep. it's a perineum is the technical <laughs> term. <laughs> Um, and so then that's actually really common. And you ended up with hemorrhoids that are also really pretty common. People will probably know what they feel like, but they might not know that hemorrhoids are swollen veins in the rectum and anus, and they can cause pain and they can also cause bleeding when you poo. This is, again, really common in women who have just had a baby. Why is it so common? Yeah, so both the hemorrhoids and the fissures turn out to be quite common. I've been amazed at the number of people who've um, either publicly shared like with me on Twitter or have written me um, since that Twitter thread um, to share that they too have had identical experiences, sometimes even at the exact same point, um, which is just the research, my, the research side of my brain is spinning in terms of how interesting it would be to continue to look at this. But um, part of the reason this is happening is because uh, when you're pregnant and breastfeeding, there are all sorts of major hormonal shifts happening to your body that are going to affect um, sort of the laxity of your ligaments that are going to affect uh, how your soft tissue heals. And, um, and so things are just kind of softer down there to help the baby come out. And then breastfeeding doesn't help, unfortunately. Breastfeeding is great for lots of stuff, but unfortunately, when it comes to pelvic floor issues, of which, and, and I can, I consider, you know, the urethra, the vulva, the anus, and all the plumbing in there, all sort of part of the pelvic floor. Um, and unfortunately, it doesn't really help things down there. It keeps things soft because you, you end up um, maintaining these low hormone levels because you don't tend to resume cycling. Um, and so, yeah, it's just kind of not a good deal. So a couple of things are going on. One is that all of those organs that got pushed to the side for the sake of a baby uh, now have gone back to where they are. So there's one, there's that soft tissue laxity thing. Two, there's the fact that you just did major trauma to that soft tissue by pushing a baby out. So if you had a C-section, you're not necessarily doing that second part. Um, but women with C-section still can have prolapse and hemorrhoids and all those kinds of things. And so then third, all of that stuff together often causes uh, constipation. And the constipation can come from a couple places. It can come from 
women not really being thrilled at the idea of pushing again after just pushing out a baby. I can't imagine um, why. Yeah, exactly. It's painful. If you have any tearing, if you've had any any kind of trauma down there, uh, going to the bathroom is terrifying. So a lot of women will mentally, you know, kind of like how a toddler holds it. A lot of postpartum moms will hold it. Um, but then that wasn't so much my issue uh, as much as just the fact that with everything moving around and everything being soft, um, it just sort of, it creates constipation issues just from all the organs kind of moving back to where they are. And, and there being so much softness that basically things can, I mean, for lack of a, for, I'm just going to be indelicate here. I mean, things just get compacted, right? Because you have a softer rectum area. So it kind of fills up more and then, you know, it's more painful when it comes on out again. Um, and of so women are also on iron, which also can increase yeah. constipation. Yeah. And, you know, again, the thing that's crazy for me is this time around, I wasn't really that constipated. I was really staying ahead of it with magnesium, um, which is why I think the, for me, I wonder if the hemorrhoids and fissures were actually somehow related to like a microbiome imbalance. I mean, this is me just talking on, well, I mean, if we're talking about butts here, I'll just say I'm just talking out of my butt here. <laughs> Um, well played. There's so, yeah, there's so little data on any of this. So who knows? But my, if I were to guess, um, at, at a research direction, that would be interesting to explore around this. I would be curious as to whether my bacterial flora changing and my sudden onset of C. diff co-occurring with all these things the way they did is somehow why it happened with me. Because again, I wasn't actually constipated. I was last time. I wasn't this time. And also just to be clear, anal fissures, they're different from hemorrhoids. They are actual cuts, yeah. basically, in the in the rectum and anal area. Um, but mm -hmm. they have the same kind of underlying cause. But so I, I was wondering, you're a feminist biologist. Mm -hmm. um, you've done research on things like menstrual cycles and that sort of thing. Has this whole issue given you a new research direction? Yeah. Oh, I'm certainly. hearing a lot of cool hypotheses coming out. No kidding. So, you know, so like you said, I'm an anthropologist, right? Anthropologists are navel gazers. We're like, what is it about our lived experience that's interesting? We're really selfish people in a way. And uh, in fact, my advisor once joked because he studied male reproductive ecology um, that he wasn't a navel gazer so much as a testicle gazer. And I'm kind of an ovary gazer, you know, like as someone who studies reproduction, I'm just constantly like interested in what's going on with my body. And really, this to me is a, another reason that it's actually as just a sidebar, super important that we continue to push for diversity and inclusion and equity in the sciences. Because if you know, part of the reason maybe that there's so little research on the postpartum period, um, from a physiological perspective is that there are not enough women who are able to actually do this research who are, you know, have been led in the door or who've been able to, to persist. Yeah. If you're um, constantly, I don't know, I guess you could call it reproductive gazing, but you're gazing at your own reproductive system and the only system you're seeing there is the male one. You're going to ask only male questions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, certainly. Or if you are interested in women's reproduction, but you don't have that system and don't have that lived experience, you're still going to come up with all sorts of interesting research questions, you're going to be a great scientist, but without that particular lived experience, there might be things that you miss, you know, and I think that's why a lot of the postpartum stuff is so missed. The only reason we care so much about postpartum depression right now is that mothers have really pushed it. You know, there's been a movement of people saying, you know, I I feel wrong. Things feel wrong for me right now and I need help. Um, and, that you know, there hasn't really been very much of movement around uh, the physiological effects, with the exception of, I would say, um, there's a really cool movement of postpartum, I mean, of uh, pelvic floor therapists. Um, there's this hashtag pelvic mafia that you can follow on Twitter. And those are all pelvic floor PTs who are desperately trying to get people to pay attention to the postpartum experience. 
So you mentioned it, and I think we many of us have seen this in the kind of in, in the media is that there has been a big movement toward postpartum depression, not just in women, but also actually in in men and fathers. Mm-hmm. Um, why do you think there has been so little movement around you know the physiology of of the postpartum experience? I mean, the cynical part of me thinks that we care about postpartum depression because that's something that might actually affect the baby. You know, I mean, if a mom isn't able to care for the baby because she's um, very depressed or having trouble connecting, and of course, where people get really scared around postpartum psychosis, which is incredibly rare, right? Um, but that's a, a really compelling, sexy thing to study. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and so, so again, the cynical part of me thinks we care about depression because not so much because we care about mom's health, because frankly, this is not a country that cares a whole lot about moms. You know, we, we make a lot of really great claims towards being pro-life and pro-family, but at the end of the day, our policies don't reflect that. Um, so I think it's that we're like, oh, well, if the, the mother of the baby is unhappy, then the baby's not going to get the care she needs. And I think that's why we've neglected the physiological experience and the, the actual, you know, again, the pelvic floor, the diastasis, that's the other, you know, I have a diastasis and two hernias that I also haven't even mentioned, um, which are about abdominal wall weakening on the front of the body. Um, I mean, there's just so much that can happen in the body that people don't know very much about. And it's, it's embarrassing when you look on PubMed, like, you know, we were talking offline about how both of us have looked up prolapse, um, you know, on PubMed and found an embarrassingly small literature on the topic. Yeah. And I also, I mean, I'm, I appreciate your cynical view. My slightly less, maybe slightly differently cynical view might be that, I mean, nobody really wants to talk about their butt. Yeah. You feel super embarrassed because nobody talks about constipation or, well, especially constipation. Um, you just don't want to talk about that or the fact that you might be bleeding out your butt. It's, it's a, something that nobody talks about anyway, let alone when you've just had a baby. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I exactly. Think- I mean, you're bleeding, you're bleeding out your vagina bad enough as it is. You, normally you bleed for about six weeks after having a baby. Um, I actually bled for 10 and a half. So yay. Um, but yeah, there's so much else. I I know there's so much else going on down there. Um, so on the one hand, I think it's that women are so like, Oh my gosh, there's so much else going on. Like, I don't even have time to like figure out what to do about these hemorrhoids right now. Um, but then, yeah, I think the other part of it is that it's embarrassing. I mean, I had them last time and I didn't go to anybody. And this time around, I was like, damn it, I'm going to see a colorectal doctor. And it's been fantastic because I've actually gotten real care by going and seeing a specialist. And you mentioned, of course, this is your second child. Um, and you know, the first time you didn't see anybody, did you, this was your second child. Did you feel like you knew what to expect? Did anybody kind of warn you about these very common postpartum complications? Um, I did know what to expect this time around, certainly. And, uh, I do think that helped me mentally. The thing that was frustrating from a personal perspective, I think this is, uh, the competitive person in me. I think this is the person that has, you know, this is the tenured professor in me who feels like I have to constantly prove that I deserve my job. Um, but uh, I knew what to expect. And I knew that the wise thing to do would be to slow down and take care of myself. And yet, um, I didn't. <laughs> and so you'd think I would have known better. And, uh, you know, as soon as I could, I was on email, I was contacting my students to try to get student meetings going, um, and getting my lab meetings going again. And, you know, it was really 
Um, looking back, it's kind of hilarious how stupid I was, <laughs> given that I knew better. Um, and I, I regret that I, yeah, um, I regret that I didn't take, you know, I didn't pay attention to what was going on in my body and say, um, you know, it's time to take care of myself. And, you know, I, to be fair, though, what's hard is that when you're a professional person and you love your job and you love the way things were before you have the kid and you're trying to figure out how to fit the second kid into your life, you know, like I wanted to go back to work. I wanted to feel like me, you know, especially with all these things going on with me, with all of the ways in which I was suffering. There was also part of me that wanted to be working because I wanted to not just be like lying around in pain at home all day. It's also really boring as it turns out. I don't know how many of your listeners happen to have ever had a newborn. Um, newborns are really boring. You can love them with every fiber of your being and think they're the most wonderful thing in the world and very, very wanted. They're still boring. <laughs> It's, it's sad, but it is kind of true. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I love babies. I mean, I, yeah, I would, I would keep this baby stage forever. I love babies, but they're also boring as heck. And I, I will just come out here and say on the podcast that your baby is an adorable little nugget. <laughs> it's so cute. She is pretty cute. Now, as you mentioned, you're an anthropologist. You've done some work, um, specifically in Poland on, um, on menstrual experiences. Um, and so you're, you're pretty familiar with the way other cultures manage pregnancy and postpartum experiences. And you've talked a little bit about how in the US, you know, it's very much like, are you back yet? How about now? How about now? How, how does the United States differ or perhaps, I guess, Western culture differ in terms of how mothers are expected to behave postpartum compared to some other cultures? Um, so my, I, I think one of the best places to look at to see that is to look at policy differences. Um, I was on a phone call recently, a work call, uh, a couple months ago with, um, a colleague of mine in the United States and a colleague in Canada. So nod to Canada, seeing as it's a Canadian podcast. And we were all joking about how I was like, you know, I really wanted to be on the call, but I was also feeling kind of overwhelmed. And the Canadian um, colleague said, I don't even know why we're having this conversation because in Canada, we wouldn't bother you for a whole year. And this is in academia too, where they just, you know, even in academia, it's like they let people just, you know, and, and again, people tend to talk about it in terms of taking care of the kid, but it's also about, you know, physical recovery from the actual experience uh, that there's, you know, you get a whole year of leave. So no, nobody would be talking to me because I'd be just on leave. Um, and there are plenty of other cultures uh, and countries where they have much better leave policies than we have. <clears throat> so we have what's called, you know, FMLA. Um, that's uh, a guarantee of 12 weeks unpaid for, I believe it's full-time workers, but military and government workers, I believe are exempt from FMLA. So, um, I mean, it's just, and so with my first kid, I took FMLA. That's all I was able to get because I was a non-tenure track professor at Harvard. And in fact, what I negotiated, which again shows how, how, uh, how much I've just internalized this idea that I have to be working all the time is what I negotiated, partly because I didn't like the idea of going 12 weeks without pay, is um, I said, how about six weeks in, I come back for half time so that I can make half pay? Um, because I just, I was terrified at the idea of having no money. Um, and I already didn't exactly have the highest salary, uh, you know, and caring for a kid. Like, it seems like that's not a good time to get not have any money is when you suddenly have a new person in your family, and potentially a lot of medical bills. Um, so this time around, as a a tenured professor, I had a very different experience where I was able to get what's called modified duties. And um, the modified duties meant that I was exempt from teaching and service, but not research for the first semester. And then I was able to sort of uh, finagle through a variety of using FMLA and sick days, a similar deal for the second semester. So this next semester, I'm not teaching either, but I am resuming service. 
Um, so it's kind of like going back 70% time or something. Um, and so, <clears throat> and so again, from the beginning, people have been kind of bugging me because it's like, I never really stopped working. The research start side of my work just kept continuing. Um, which meant, you know, even if I was from a company, I and, and so again, I'm, I'm talking about the policy because I feel like it, it interacts with some of these cultural things because we don't have anything in our culture that says for 30 days, a woman's community supports her and takes care of her and nourishes her with this wonderful chicken soup. Or for the first year, um, people come and help with the childcare or, you know, whatever it is. Like, um, these, we don't have anything like that. We don't have a particular cultural practice that says care for the mother. We have a cultural practice that says that baby's so cute. Post some more pictures, please. You know what I mean? Um, you know, like there's a, one of my most recent, um, period podcast episodes with, was with Dr. Claudia Valagia. And she talked about the com in, um, and these are indigenous folks in Argentina. And one of their practices is that um, a woman's uh, husband cannot try to initiate intercourse with her until the baby can walk. So it's a way of saying like, hey, all that stuff has to heal. And we should maybe try to put in some natural birth spacing in here um, in order to sort of take care of the mom. And if the if the mom gets pregnant before the baby, um, before that baby can walk, he gets ribbed quite a bit by the folks in this community. Like, hey, couldn't you just leave her alone? Um, And nobody would say that here. (laughs) Nobody would say, can you please just leave this mom alone? We don't have any sense that we should preserve basically anything from the mom. Yeah, in fact, there's a, a culture in, you know, women's magazines and stuff. It's like, well, how to get your mojo back? You know, your baby's yeah. six months, get on it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Instead of all acknowledging that if you have a ton of trauma down there, maybe there should be some more care taken towards the mom, you know, instead of rushing her towards getting her, you know, getting your body back or, you know, which again, like, you're, you know, kind of like what you're saying about getting your mojo back. I mean, it's all about a return to an acceptable form of sexuality, right? So as soon as possible, you have to look sexy again for the gaze, for the male gaze, instead of um, doing the caretaking that may not change the shape of your body, but um, will heal you. Now, you wrote a really excellent uh, Twitter thread about your experiences. It ended up going really viral. Um, And I hope that it's opened a lot of people's eyes to some of these really common postpartum complications. What do you hope that people will take away from that thread when they read it, which we will link on the website? Um, Really, what I was... So the original purpose behind it was just, I'm really mad. Like, I, I seriously was... I mean, you know, the first tweet talks about, like, I'm up with debilitating heartburn. I had been pacing. I was at my in-laws house and my baby and my husband and my other kid were all asleep. And I'm just pacing the hallways, Googling heartburn, (laughs) heartburn remedies, trying to figure out like just what in the world I could do because I was so miserable. Um, And then finally, uh, I remembered that I could maybe chew some gum because I'd had heartburn over this pregnancy. And so I found some, I'm like in the darkness trying to find some gum in my bag. And so I'm sitting up in bed chewing gum and just furious that it's like yet another thing has happened to me with mastitis, you know, like, and I'm, feverish and exhausted. And I'm at my in-laws who are wonderful people, but it's stressful to be not in your home and sick, you know, Um, because then I was afraid that I was going to look like a bad mom because I needed naps and I was tired. And, you know, I, I, I definitely worry a lot about other people's appearances. Uh, to like help other people view me. Um, I think it's sort of becoming clear to myself around that stuff. Uh, so anyway, it was like one in the morning. I could not sleep and I was having, I was sitting upright chewing gum and I just wrote this post because I just wanted to raise awareness around it. I was so mad and sleep deprived and, and had a fever, right? So I was basically not really in my, in my right mind. I think if it was a, if I'd had a full night's sleep, this, it wouldn't have occurred to me to ever write this. So in some ways, I guess maybe I'm grateful that, <laughs> that I was feeling so terrible that I decided to be really honest. 
Um, but really my one goal was just to say like, you know, not all women suffer after having children. I'm not trying to make it out to be that kind of an experience, but many women do. And many women have experiences and, and medical issues that they could get at least some help on if they knew to ask or if they knew that the experience was common or that they didn't feel shame around going and getting them taken care of. So that's, that's what motivated it initially. Um, was again, just a sense of anger and sleep deprivation and having a fever. <laughs> and then, you know, but looking back, certainly what I'm, what I'm now hoping on reflection is, is really that it opens up some conversations. I saw a lot of people sharing it and saying, Oh, Hey, I'm going to be sharing this with the med students that I teach, or I'm going to be sharing this with my practice. Um, so what I'm, you know, what I really hope happens is that maybe some, um, that medical practice changes so that we don't basically just, regardless of how women present at six weeks, because um, re- right now what we have is a six-week checkup for a woman after she's had a baby. And that's, for the most part, most practices, that's the end. You basically graduate and you never see those people again. You never see your OB or your midwife or whoever unless you have another baby. And so, um, and that's even if at six weeks, there's plenty that's unresolved, right? By six weeks, I was, uh, I think I still was on antibiotics for C. diff. I still had below normal iron. Um, I still had the hemorrhoids and fissures. Um, I probably was developing the rectocele, but for some reason in my practice, it was not actually um, part of their normal practice to do an internal exam at six weeks. So they didn't find it because they didn't look for it. Uh, And then the mastitis came later. So, you know, um, it really seems crazy to me that they don't say, okay, so at the six week, you still had a lot going on. You know what? Let's check in again in another six weeks. Let's have a 12 week appointment and have that be covered by insurance, you know? Um, so those are the kinds of big things that I'm really hoping shift is I really think that women need more frequent checkups and more referrals to specialists in order to actually get care. The, the one other, oh, and the last thing I'd say is I, I actually wish that we would, um, have, and this is true of other countries. Um, I, in, on Twitter, several people have told me now that this is normal in France, that it's a part of normal pregnancy and postnatal care to have a pelvic floor physical therapist. And we do not do that here. Yeah, and that can have some really long-term uh, consequences if you have mm-hmm. a persistently weakened pelvic floor. Yeah, I mean, I'm at least my gynecologist, and and I know I have a friend whose gynecologist told her a similar thing that basically said, "Look, you know, and this might be incorrect because the data is so poor, but who knows?" Um, so each of these gynecologists told us, you know, hey, you can do some PT, and it'll kind of make it a little better for now, but five, ten years postpartum, when all your hormones go away again, you're going to need surgery. She's like, "Oh, great, I'm going to need surgery." on my vaginal wall. Oh, that sounds really fun. Um, so that's terrifying, you know, and that's incredibly demoralizing to a postpartum mom who is like literally sitting there holding their infant. (laughs) And, uh, and, you know, just had a very, you know, for me, I just had a very painful internal exam, um, for her to sort of look at everything and figure out what was going on. And then to basically be told, yeah, you can kind of limp along for the next 20 years. And then guess what, you're going to need surgery. Um, it's just not that's not the most sensitive way to handle something that devastating to someone who's already going through so much. Yeah. Well, Kate, thank you so much for sharing your experience. I really appreciate it because I know it was obviously terrible. And I know it's really intimate. And so I, I think this will really educate people. And thank you so much for sharing with us. No problem. Thank you. We've linked to more information about Kate Clancy and her work, as well as other resources on maternal morbidity and mortality at scienceforthepeople.ca. When we get back, we're going to talk a little bit more about the physiology. Why is this stuff happening and what's going on? Stay tuned. Every week on Science for the People, we take the latest in scientific progress and relate it to people, our friends, our families, our communities, and our society. And we give researchers, authors, and journalists the time to talk in-depth about what matters to them. 
you love science but aren't satisfied with sound bites, join us again next week for Science for the People on your local radio station or anytime online at scienceforthepeople.ca. Hey y'all, before we get into the second interview, we have a brief note to make. Julie Weeb will be talking about various grades for prolapse. Keep in mind, there are different scales that doctors and physical therapists use, and if you are concerned, you should definitely not take a podcast word for it. See your medical professional instead. We've got more information about the different grades of prolapse at our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. Welcome back to Science for the People. I'm Bethany Brookshire, a writer with Science News and Society for Science and the Public. Pregnancy and delivery are huge physical challenges. First, you're incubating something that depends entirely on you for nutrition and waste disposal for nine months. Then you have to send it out into the world in a manner I once read described as trying to squeeze a pot roast through a Cheerio. At least it's a stretchy Cheerio. But in the process, things move around. Organs shift, ligaments relax, diaphragms get lifted. Humans are stretchy, but we're not rubber bands. So after delivery, things don't always snap right back to where they originally were. One of the things that can happen very commonly is a condition called prolapse. If you identify as a woman and you've ever been told to do your kegels, this is probably one of the reasons why. And prolapse doesn't just cause short-term discomfort. It can cause long-term problems as well. Here to talk us through what happens when all the tubes down there collapse into each other is Julie Weeb, a physical therapist in the Los Angeles area. Julie, thank you so much for making time for us. Of course. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I'm continuing this podcast first with a content note to listeners. We are talking about rectums and vaginas, and there will probably be blood. So if you're listening to this over breakfast, that's your funeral. Now, (laughs) we're going to start by defining our terms. We're going to be talking a good bit about the pelvic floor area. What is the pelvic floor? Can you give us a tour of like the anatomy down there? Sure. Um, The pelvic floor is actually a group of muscles. And I think it's really important to recognize that they are muscles, uh, which means they are accessible and trainable. Um, And the four of them um, actually work together in, um, in unison to help support our organs. That's what we're talking about today. But they also have a role to play in helping us control when and where we go to the bathroom uh, for both pee and poo. And they actually are a component of our core stability system. Um, We don't often talk about that piece, but that's actually a really critical piece of the puzzle um, related to the pelvic floor. But it attaches from the front of your pelvis to um, to back against the sacrum and the coccyx, which are essentially the end of your um, uh, spine. And then it does have some attachments inside the pelvis as well. And when you talk about the stability of the whole kind of torso, you're talking about things like posture? Um, yeah, I mean, that's one thing that we we utilize our trunk control, our proximal strength for is to help us stand upright against gravity. Um, but a lot of what we understand or talk about with the core is sort of related to strengthening activities. And, um, and it basically creates our anchor at our center so that the rest of us like our extremities have something to work off uh, to help us get about through our day, do workouts, pick up groceries, play with our kids. Um, So we need some measure of control at the center in order to do all of our movements and our fitness and our function effectively and efficiently. And so the pelvic floor is actually a part of the system that provides that for us. But we don't talk about that usually. It doesn't always get a lot of press for that. So I always like to mention that. And the pelvic floor is a group of muscles that 
are all kind of located in that that area, kind of the sling in between your legs. Um, yep. Inside but there's the there's okay. three tubes that go down <laughs> in this mass, um, and that includes the urethra and the rectum. And if you are if you are you know endowed with female anatomy, the vagina. Yes. Um, what happens to those tubes? and to the pelvic floor area in general during pregnancy and delivery? Um, well, <clears throat> the basically, and I wish I had the numbers at my fingertips, but, um, but we just understand that it does go through some changes during the pregnancy in terms of accommodating the added weight of um, the baby, the uterus. There's some uh, lengthening that goes on there to accommodate those changes, but it's also built to do that. Um, so I don't want that to sound scary. Um, and then during delivery, and I really wish I had the numbers in front of me, we actually have seen the pelvic floor go through a greater capacity to to stretch and lengthen um, than normal muscle than normal muscle <laughs> does, so that we can go through delivery. It it just it, I, I really, it exponentially has the capacity to lengthen and not break the way that another muscle might at that same level of stretch. It's kind of fascinating. And it has to have something to do with the chemicals and the hormones related to delivery. Um, but so it's not quite a Cheerio, but that's pretty, pretty nice. Um, having popped out two bowling balls out of my own Cheerio, like I, I get the analogy, but it does have a pretty incredible capacity to stretch through the delivery process. Um, and, uh, yeah, so hopefully that's enough of a idea, but it does have this tremendous capacity even beyond what our normal, every other muscle, our bicep, our quad do without tearing, um, which is pretty remarkable. And so they're extremely stretchy in their ability to stretch out. Do they just snap back? Um, unfortunately, uh, that isn't always the case. The issue for the, the pelvic the, the pelvic floor complex is there are muscles, that's primarily muscles, but there's also fascia in there. And fascia is uh, basically the spider webby stuff when you pull apart a chicken. Um, inside of us, it's thicker than that. And it has a little bit more of a... Um, uh, it has a little a little more density to it than that. But that's part of why the pelvic floor complex can stretch so much. So while the pelvic the muscles have the capacity in many um, cases to go back into a more um, uh, the only word I can think of right now is normal, um, or a it returns to more of its baseline, the fascia doesn't have as much contractile capacity. It can't, um, it doesn't contract and relax the way a muscle does. It does have some, but depending on how things go, it can, those are considered our passive structures, our passive supports. Those can sometimes move beyond the capacity for us to get them short again so that they're holding things more um, comfortably. So then we hope the muscles can make up for what the fascia lost as we retrain that muscular capacity. Um, so, uh, so yeah, there, a lot of ladies go back and they are, they're good to go, but there's a group of women that, um, that do not. And we don't necessarily, a lot of what we need to understand better is who are the women. If we could identify who the women are that have more of a genetic uh, predisposition to fascia stretching out more than others, it might help us have a little bit more capacity to educate and predict who might run into a bit more trouble than other women in that regard. And so when these muscles and fascia don't really kind of snap back perfectly, 
you kind of get this weakened condition that's associated with prolapse. Can you tell me what prolapse is? So the, um, the, the organs inside the pelvis, so bladder, uterus, rectum, um, can actually, basically they slide south, uh, toward the exit. And, um, and what happens is that, uh, the bladder can, um, impinge on the, the vaginal bolt. So it can, I can actually send you, um, a really nice group of visuals of this. Um, so it, it sort of slides south. It's called a cystocele and, um, it can sort of impinge on the tube that leads out from the uterus, the, out into the world. And then the rectum can do the same thing from behind. The uterus itself can come down and then the vaginal vault itself can also come down. Um, and they can slide south. They can slide inside, like they can still be contained inside your pelvic floor and the pelvic cavity. But in some cases, it gets to the point where it's actually coming outside of the body. And which so is these are called, there's different stages to prolapse right. where your your kind of your organs are kind of poking out sort of kind of what what are the different stages yeah. of prolapse so um they're they're graded it, there's actually a couple different unfortunately there are a lot of different types of ways that we measure this but um the one that i'm most familiar with is called the pop q and it's um, anyway, it doesn't really matter what it's called, but they're, they're graded up to number four, four, zero, one, two, three, four. And so depending on how far down in the pelvic cavity and then out toward the exit it is determines the severity of the prolapse and what we, yeah, so that's, that's the basics. It sort of gives you kind of a staging, um, and, tr- and it helps us understand if we, we make improvements in terms of the positioning, um, as things sort of snap back as best they can. Um, but it also, um, is related to and correlated to, uh, symptoms. So, so that's the other piece of the puzzles. We have to kind of have symptoms that help us understand that the prolapse is occurring because it's hard to see. I, I was going to ask actually, what are, what are the some of the symptoms associated with prolapse? Um, so the the most common or the most well understood are things like heaviness inside your vagina or actual pain. Pressure is another thing that women will report. Um, they can also experience um, uh, a feeling like a tampon is kind of coming out. Um, they may not be able to retain a tampon. Um, they can actually look and see, like if you look with a mirror and you, you bear down, you may actually see something kind of bulge into the, um, the vaginal, um, into your, into your view, it'll come right out. And it looks kind of like a, not a golf ball, it's smoother than that. Um, but yeah, so it's, it's, those are the most common things that people note, um, is, is that heaviness, especially after exercise, especially at the end of the day, there's sort of this lengthening of that spending time on your feet will, will aggravate it. Um, so yeah, those are some of the major symptoms. And when you say that they see this bulge, which I have to just pause and shudder a little. Oh, I know, I know. Oh, that sounds so awful. <laughs> is that, are they seeing tissue from the inside of the vagina or are you actually seeing your uterus? Like, like what is that? Well, yeah, it's, it's essentially like, and again, not everybody gets that far. I just want to make that really clear before we scare everyone. 
out of ever ever having children. I'm just saying I'm um, doing my kegels right now. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's more to it than kegels, so I hope we can we get to that too. But um, but it it, it can um, so what you would see it. it and everyone can Google it, quite frankly, um, and they'll kind of get some visuals then, although that, it might be scary. But it's sort of like you see um, the, what you'll see is really what you're going to visualize is the inside lining of the vaginal vault. But it's it's the, the organ. So say the bladder is what's pressing against that tissue. So you don't actually see like the organ, but you kind of see it pressing out against the vaginal vault, if that makes sense. Right. Yeah. Now, you mentioned that right now it's kind of diagnosed via symptoms. How common is prolapse after birth? Well, here's, here's where, and I, um, this is where it gets a little tricky. Uh, A lot of the studies that we have related to prevalence um, are actually done on older women. So we don't necessarily have great numbers for immediately after birth. And so that's where part of the conversation here is tricky because we just need a lot more information and evidence and research around what happens for women. What I will tell you is that it's really not unusual for women to have that sensation, like something's between their legs or something's falling out. Like they, um, they, they sort of, um, that can be something that they, they feel immediately after delivery. And part of that is because of the pushing, like when you're pushing and, and trying to get the baby out, you end up kind of putting a lot of extra pressure onto all the organs down there. And it's not unusual to kind of have a sensation like things are south or heavy, down in your nethers. And so that though that sensation should start to alleviate over the first two to three months and even over the first three to six for some women. So there's some, I don't want to say normalcy to that, but it's just not to super overly panic at that point. But it's worthy of getting it checked out and asking your doctor when you go in for your follow up about that. Um, but the uh, so we so we don't know where that line is where women then become symptomatic and it actually sticks around and where is just part of the natural recovery process. Um, and so the only study that I've seen that actually talks about the statistics from 30 to 39 has it at around 30%. But that is that is not necessarily the postpartum crowd. Um, so that's where this car, it's a little tricky to give you an actual number, but it's about 30%, we think. And then as you age, there is some association with aging. And we think that the numbers go up to somewhere in the neighborhood of 50%, which I hate saying out loud, but because I don't want to scare people. Well, I, I'm a little struck by this because you, you sent me some papers and you mentioned also that a lot of the studies about prolapse have occurred in older women. But I mean, this, we, women are pushing things out of their vaginas, why haven't people done more postpartum studies? Why are so many of the studies limited to older women? Great question. I don't know. We're working on it really hard. Um, and I think part of the issue is, is that it's considered normal to have a baby. And yeah, things are going to be a little different down there. You had a baby, like the kinds of things that people hear are really distressing. Yeah, you had a baby. That's why you have low back pain. Yeah, you had a baby. That's why you leak when you walk around the block. Yeah, you know, there's sort of this normalcy to moms falling apart after they have a baby. And, um, and it's kind of what we've always, um, we've seen classically with our parents and our grandmas and it just sort of is with, and so I think that's a bit of it. And so we need to start changing that conversation that you should be expecting to, to feel well, to have sex like you'd like, have, go to the bathroom when you want, 
have your organs stay inside your body, move in space with good control of your center. Like all of those things should be something that we would expect after we have children. Um, and, uh, and, but we don't have, um, but we haven't really focused on helping women recover from pregnancy because we kind of sell it as a, um, it's just normal. Like what you had a baby six weeks ago, you should be ready to go back to work, <laughs> which is crazy. I just and, love that. Uh, we have a right to keep our organs inside our bodies. (laughs) Amen. And, you know, a lot of other countries have it a little better figured out than we do here in the United States. And, you know, women, my, uh, you know, we shared a Canadian connection. My sisters-in-law were like, come back to Canada. When, When you have your babies, we get a year off. And, you know, I got uh, kind of an extended time with my children, but I had to go back pretty quickly myself. So it's, and most women do that have to work. And so, we don't give women an appropriate recovery strategy. And so what happens is if they've already got a tendency towards or they've had some kind of damage done during their um, delivery, um, you know, if they've got an injury that they need to recover, we don't necessarily create environments around them that that perpetuate that or, or promote that. And then they continue habits in their life that that push them further and further into injury rather than help them recover. And then we start to see the fallout after a few years of just trying to keep their heads above water, take care of babies, go to work, go to the grocery store, you know, whatever it is. And, and then it falls out, falls out is like no pun intended. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, and then we sort of, that's when we start running into a little bit more trouble. And then it gets associated with older women when in reality, the process likely started a little bit younger. And you mentioned Um, things like lower back pain, um, mm -hmm. and, uh, for example, problems with incontinence. What are some of the long-term consequences of untreated prolapse? Um, uh, that it generally speaking untreated, it doesn't really improve. It tends to worsen and the issue around prolapse and it, and again, like, I want to thank you for using your platform to try to educate women on this is women don't know what's going on. Like they don't, they don't know they had a baby kind of feels weird down there, but shouldn't it feel weird? Like no one really talks about it. And there is a bit of generational silence because your mom thinks it's normal too. And your grandma thinks it's normal too, because that's all they've ever been told. So, so there is a bit of, of not really ever dealing with it because you don't know there's help and you also don't know what the heck is going on. Unfortunately, a lot of GPs and um, even gynecologists don't necessarily know how to test for it. And we don't have a systemized way, uh, like it's too bad we have lots of different scales. And so we don't always have the same communication capacity around it because we're still trying to figure out how to measure it. And when, when is it too something that you, you know, get, you know, you raise red flags over, meaning a grade two prolapse versus a grade three prolapse or a grade one prolapse? Because some people have grade two and, and even not really threes, but grade twos and they're asymptomatic. They have no symptoms. And so you so mentioned people don't really know how to test for it. How, I mean, from what you say, it sounds like you could just kind of take a mirror and look, how, how do professionals test for this? Well, there is, they, they would do it with, um, there's, there's some, um, uh, testing that you do either with, um, digital, uh, digital, the only word I can think of is penetration, but that's not the right. Well, <laughs> and by digital, you mean, that's you mean what I'm digits looking for. as in fingers. 
Sorry. Yeah. (laughs) There's also, um, you can visualize it when they bear down. Not always though. Like, so that's the thing to really understand. Like once you get into the threes and fours, that's when you're going to visualize it. If you're as one or a two, you wouldn't necessarily see it near the exit. So that's important. Um, so, so it really, and we have women that have a grade of one, which is actually still considered normal in many cases, but they can have symptoms. And then we have women that are two, like I'll call it a low two, and they don't have any symptoms. So it's, it's really, um, we're still learning how, how and when to appropriately address um, a prolapse when we see it and, and what, what is worthy of concern and what is not. And we're, you know, we're starting to learn in my world that we've sort of put a lot of um, weight and um, given a lot of emotional energy to things like an MRI that shows you have you have a herniated disc. We know that not everybody who has herniated discs has symptoms. So so we also are seeing that a little bit here with prolapse as we start to really dig in, you know, just because it's come down a little bit doesn't necessarily translate always to symptoms. So it's it gets a little tricky. And I know that this is probably going a little deeper than you meant to, for me to do. But but we are really trying to figure out how do we understand who is in trouble and who how do we help prevent other people from getting into trouble and um, and then who do we need to just monitor so that things don't move into trouble? Does that make sense? Yeah. And and so does this mean we should all abandon our kegels? Um, so that's a really t- that's a tricky question. I don't think that if you're out there doing kegels, what I usually say to my patients, because I get two things when people come in, they say, oh, I never I'm sorry, I never do my kegels. And I'm not concerned about that because I want to teach you how to use your pelvic floor in unison with the other things, other teammates that it has. Um, but the, if you've been doing the keg, doing been doing kegels, it's actually one of the ways that you can help to connect with that area. And so I, I basically teach women to reconnect with that area. And um, and I do it through visual imagery. Actually, I ask women to to think about lifting red kidney beans with their with their hoo hoo and their anus, um, and uh, and what it does is it gives them something to start to. You have to do something to help you connect with that area, and then once you've connected, and for you that might be a kegel, I then immediately help you start to learn to use it in conjunction with your tummy and with your diaphragm, because those guys work together to manage pressure and then also to work together to help us create that stability at the center. And those things are all interconnected: incontinence instability, prolapse instability. It's all interconnected. And we've kind of kept it all separated um, because it's sort of, it is kind of oogie and weird to talk about it, but I'm hoping with opportunities like this, we can make it a little less oogie and weird. So that's my hope. Well, Julie, thank you so much for taking the time to talk us through this. Sure. My pleasure. We've linked to more information about Julie Weeb and her work at scienceforthepeople.ca, as well as including links to various studies on prolapse. There, you'll also find links to Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes, where you can subscribe to the show or leave us a review about how very uncomfortable it was to hear about blood, pooping, and prolapse over your breakfast. (laughs) You'll also find a link to our Patreon page, where your donation could help us pay for the show, get nice podcasting equipment for our dulcet tones, and much, much more. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week on Science for the People. Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten and consulting support from Desiree Shell. Our frequently seen guest hosts are Marion Kilgour, Anika Hazra, and Jessica Yaros. 
Our theme song is called Binary Consequence, and it was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern. Science for the People is entirely listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount, or you can send us a one-time donation in any amount via the donate page of our website. Science for the People is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at skeptic.org. The show is hosted by science news writer Bethany Brookshire and me, Rochelle Saunders.